This is a Socialist News and Views special interview. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. So on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. Do you want to just tell us who you are? Sure. I'm Adam Robbins. I was born in Maine, met my husband at Harvard, followed him around the world to Minnesota, where I did some work for the LGBT and marriage equality movement. And then I followed him to China for about 10 years, where I was doing some light journalism. And now I followed him to Manhattan. That's super cool. I, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about your book. I, uh, you released a book. It's been a while since you released it, but I was in the middle of a bunch of books myself. So it took me a little longer to read all that stuff. Uh, and also read your book when I'm reading so many at a time. Uh, the full title is Plague World Chronicles Day by Day Through the 2020 Pandemic with an American Lockdown in China. I read some of the early posts that became the book on Facebook. Uh, you know, tell me, how did you come to write the posts and what made you decide to turn it into a book and how was that whole process? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for reading it, first of all. I really appreciate uh, it. really started uh, as a fallout of the plans that we had in place to bring my parents over to come visit China for the first time. They were actually planning to be there in January of 2020. And we were watching the news uh, with bated breath and saw that this was not going to be a good idea. Right. Um, and then when we canceled their flight, my mom was obviously worried about my state of health and my my well-being. Um, so it began as Facebook posts aimed to my mom and any friends that were paying attention. And then I got a lot of good response from people uh, on Facebook, some of whom I didn't know very well, who really picked up the information and saw that this was uh, a wave of disaster that was going to be making its way toward America, and they really took it to heart. Um, it gave me a lot of encouragement to keep posting with some, some regularity, and after that I built up basically a year's worth of posts, and with the encouragement of all of the different fans and followers, I put them all together, edited it down, made them somewhat consistent, didn't do too much in terms of fact-checking, because I wanted to keep that freshness that um, I had at the very beginning. Um, just trying to get the perspective of someone that was there on the ground, experiencing things in real time, and sort of carrying forward whatever ignorance I had at the time. Right. And if I did go back and change something, like the next day if I changed any facts, I'd try to go in and change the, the underlying record as well so that I had all those things in the right place. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, it's a... Essentially, it's, it reads like a, you know, a diary of, you know, yeah, like you said, day by day, uh, experiencing, you know, the situation in 2020 from China. But it also covers, you know, lots of other areas in, in addition to China. What's going on back in the U.S., global situation, current events, uh, you know, latest research. Um, and each entry ends with the day's, you know, current COVID stats. Would you be willing to read an excerpt from the uh, book? Sure, I'd be happy to. I, I picked one out. I, I think I sent it to you. It was the uh, seven seventeen, being the date. Would go ahead and read whenever you're ready. Seven seventeen. 
Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang in western China, is in lockdown after four COVID cases. Infections continue to surge in the United States as Trump ordered hospitals to bypass the CDC and deliver all test results to a secret database run by the White House task force. In their typical Hunger Games fashion, they suggested using the National Guard to force hospitals to comply. If numbers out of the U.S. were unreliable before, due to limits and delays in testing, now all official counts must be considered dubious. Georgia, where it's business as usual, confirmed cases are surging and now matched Arizona's. Nevertheless, the Republican governor has overruled local measures requiring masks. The state reports 84% of critical care beds are occupied and nearly 1,100 patients are on ventilators. There's a chilling tale of the coronavirus spreading in a Fort Worth women's medical prison. Of the 1,373 inmates, 130 are now infected and placed in solitary confinement. Cases seem to grow daily as the shared cells are not quickly or thoroughly cleaned, toilets are still shared, and inmates are responsible for cleaning shared appliances, often without proper cleaning supplies. Mattresses of the confined are stacked into a desolate tower in the former communal space. The governor of Oklahoma, who met Trump at last month's poorly attended rally, has tested positive for COVID-19. He's the first governor to announce an infection. Brazil's President Bolsonaro tested positive for a second time. His country has the second highest confirmed infection rate after the U.S. He, too, has sidelined medical experts and dismissed the infection as a little flu. India is reimposing lockdown in cities and regions as their confirmed caseload passed the one million mark. They now have the third highest caseload in the world. South Africa has confirmed over 10,000 daily cases for several days, now reporting almost half of Africa's 600,000 plus cases and nearly a third of the 13,500 deaths. Half of all new infections in Hong Kong are of unknown origin, prompting a return to strict social controls, closing businesses and public places, limiting public gatherings to just four and a $645 fine for not wearing a mask. 45% of new cases in Japan are also of unknown route, raising Tokyo to its highest alert level. In Australia, where the outbreak is spilling over from quarantined Melbourne to Sydney, 51% of new infections are of unknown origin. But in South Korea, aggressive contact tracing could account for their 10% figure of unknowns. The leader of South Korea's secretive Shincheonji Church was interrogated for four hours related to allegations that he worked to thwart contact tracing during the February outbreak among congregants. He's also accused of embezzlement and destruction of evidence. The European Union is fighting over who should receive what from an unprecedented $2.1 trillion coronavirus recovery fund. The 27 members are meeting in person with masks and distancing, but there are signs talks could end without a resolution on Saturday night. China reported economic growth of 3.2% in the second quarter after the Q1 drop of 6.8%, even as experts say the numbers don't add up. They point to the 10% of services that are still closed and the 33% of the industrial sector that wasn't online. How do you increase year on year when a chunk of the business sector is at zero output? Here in Shenzhen, the real estate market is boiling over again. China's decision to prop up its economy by requiring lower bank reserves means there's more cash to lend, driving up prices in this tech boom town. Now there are strict new rules on who can buy a second home, though there are always ways to cheat. There's also a return to the high-risk shadow banking that got local banks and governments into trouble before. This often funds real estate gambles under the idea of buying high and selling for even higher. But eventually, it's always a game of musical chairs.
a legit study, finally. A British trial of dexamethasone treated 2,104 hospitalized patients with the steroid for 10 days and compared them to 4,321 patients receiving traditional care. Researchers reported a drop in mortality in patients on ventilators, 29% versus 41%, but only a slight improvement in those otherwise receiving oxygen, 23% versus 26%. There was no improvement for those who didn't need oxygen. Steroids like this suppress inflammation, which the body uses as part of its immune response. That can help limit the impact of excess inflammation, as occurs in the cytokine storm, but prescribed too early, it can hamper the initial fight against the infection. Australian researchers have invented a 20-minute test for agglutination, a clumping of red blood cells caused by the coronavirus. It only requires 20 microliters of plasma from blood samples and should be able to identify recent infections. The world's official numbers, official with an asterisk, 14,187,072 confirmed cases. That's an additional 729,614 in the last three days. There are 599,274 deaths. That's an additional 18,000. And there are 8,453,962 recoveries. That's an additional 606,000. Perfect. Um, yeah, so, you know, having been in China during this period in 2020, and I... You know, and I picked that uh, that one because I that uh, uh, excerpt because I thought it covered a lot of the types of things that you cover in the uh, in the book. Uh, you know, you were experiencing in China lockdowns, restrictions on movement, uh, but that was not just happening in China. It was hard, you know a large section of the globe was putting some form of restrictions or other in place. So you know there was something like this going on. You know, in the U.S. as well. You know, what if anything do you think people in the United States misunderstand about? China or get wrong about the way the Chinese government operates, you know, including during the, uh, the COVID pandemic. Right. It's a great question. It's a massive question. It is. Um, just isolating in a small sense on the COVID response. I would, I would really put a contrast between the experience that I had in Shenzhen and the South of China and people in a city like New York during the year 2020 hmm. people here in New York had such a different time because there were locally very strong, uh, a very strong push to keep people working from home, keep people inside of their homes and only have essential workers out in the world. There were, there was a lot more spread going on. There was a lot more porous borders. There was a lot of, there was a lot of surge taking place in the United States under, under President Trump, under the, sort of malfeasance of his CDC. And that brought very strong reactions and very strong restrictions here in New York. Whereas in China at the time, I actually faced a lot more freedom of movement and a lot more freedom of assembly, ironically enough. After a very brief initial bout, probably for the first several months of 2020, after that I was able to go to businesses again, go into malls again. We had to wear masks, but otherwise people were going about their business just as they had before. The Starbucks that was nearby my apartment, they closed for maybe three weeks, maybe a month, and then they were back to doing business again. Um, it was primarily like contactless and people were picking up and caring to go, but it was almost business as usual. 
I think that is something that surprises people when I come back to the United States to hear that China had such a different experience because for that first year and for most, pretty much all of 2021 as well, the Chinese policy of having a very strict border control and keeping out a lot of people really did have the intended effect of keeping widespread infections at a minimum. And that went well for a time. And then everything just unraveled when they began to consume Hong Kong, basically. Hong Kong has always been one foot in the Chinese world and one foot in the rest of the world. Uh, it's how Hong Kong, and it's their existence, basically, as a financial center and a place where people can travel and bank um, and have, have access to both the Chinese market and the Western market. And so they necessarily had much more exposure to people, much more exposure to infections. And being an island off the tip of China, they were constantly at the mercy of whatever food could be trucked into Hong Kong from the mainland. And those truckers had to go back and forth. And that yeah, itself became a source of, of transmittable infections that were going to Shenzhen, that were going to other cities nearby like, like Guangzhou. And that began the unraveling of the successful COVID zero policy uh, that had made 2020 and 2021 pretty reasonable in China. So that by this year, 2022, everything had basically unraveled and we're seeing the, the sporadic outbreaks all over China. And we're seeing the heavy handed uh, lockdowns all over China, which can be enforced in a way that they cannot be enforced in the United States just because of the structure of Chinese governance, which is very top-down, but also ends at a very, very local level, where even at the neighborhood level, there are basically cadres or sort of locally appointed um, members who are not necessarily part of the Communist Party, but are sort of brought into the trust of the Communist Party and asked to monitor their neighbors and sort of cajole their neighbors into certain behaviors. And the way that they've built a lot of the housing in China if it's older, it's in neighborhoods that can be sealed off. And if it's newer complexes, they're almost all tower buildings that have a gate around the entire complex. And so it becomes very easy in a case like this to lock all but one gate and then force everyone through that gate. And before they can get in, you need to show a QR code that shows that you are healthy. And as of the beginning of 2020, everyone had to show a QR code saying that not only are you healthy, but you have had a COVID test within the last 24 hours. And that is one of the, one of the sore points that has led to so much of the, of the resentment and the anger that we're seeing now. Yeah. And, you know, sort of the flip side of that, but a very similar question, you know, did being in China in general, or maybe even specifically during this time, give you a new perspective on the U.S., you know, now, you know, you're back, you said in New York now, it's like, if so, how is your view on the U.S. different now than it was when you originally went to China? It's, it's really complicated, of course. Mm -hmm. um, when I, when I left, uh, President Obama was still in office and felt like a very different time than the America that I read about under President Trump while I was in China. I was I was there in China entirely during uh, during the the four years of Trump's administration, and so the, the the anger and the way that people were riled up into resentful 
anti-government, anti-science, anti-progress, anti-compassion like, um, was something that struck me as not alien, but it struck me as a different part of America coming to the forefront. Um, so when I was in China and looking back at America, I was getting very anxious about returning, thinking that America, taking on actually some of the stereotypes that are commonly shared in China, uh, emphasizing America's access to guns, emphasizing America's lingering racial inequities and racial resentments, um, emphasizing the, the divisions within America that China's government likes to play up when it's emphasizing how good it is doing at keeping China one happy unitary state. Uh, so I found myself sort of slipping into some of those ideas about America when I was when I was over in China. And I'm delighted to see that a lot of those fears and a lot of those concerns were extremely inflated and, and exaggerated uh, during my time there. And so I came back to an America that's much more like what I remember um, come, becoming more and more like the China that I got used to, at least in terms of how technology is being implemented and how pervasive some of the payment systems and the potential surveillance systems are starting to become more and more widespread in America. But in terms of uh, actually using them, using them in that uh, capacity, America seems to be inching toward where China has been running. Mm. With, this is just kind of a very small follow-up question. Was there anything that was a, like kind of more like jolting to you coming back to the U.S.? Like, like, you know, you said you expected it to be a lot different and it was nice to see that it's the same, but was there anything that was a little difficult to get used to back in the U.S.? Hmm. You don't have to, there doesn't have to be anything. I'm just yeah, curious. Yeah, I mean, I, you were there for a while, so. I was there for a long while and I'm still kind of getting used to America again. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm still, I'm still adjusting, mm -hmm. still adjusting to life on the ground. I Living in New York has been a great boon to the kind of life that we want to live. Mm. Uh, having no car, having the access to the urban sphere. And I got very used to that in China, in, in Beijing where we were living, and then Shenzhen, the, the megalopolis down south. Um, those are very, very easy, uh, very urban spaces where you can easily get around without any car. Um, so a lot of that has felt familiar and not too jolting. Um, I guess in America, in New York, there's more homeless people. There's more uh, aggression in the subways. There's more of a sense that people are unrestrained by a sense. How to put it? In China, I felt very safe. I felt like I believed the statistics, and in my day-to-day -day life, it felt like they were very low chance of violent crime ever happening to me. Mm. In America, that is not the case. And I knew that wouldn't be the case. And I have felt it without feeling irrationally scared, but I am aware that some portion of the American population has the propensity to violence and will use it because of the stresses and because of the circumstances of the of the situation, and they're not intimidated by the state the same way that the Chinese people are. Very fair. We've we've seen a number of protests in China recently that have been 
I think they've been, you know, covered more heavily in some media than others. I've noticed it seems like everywhere is at least uh, highlighted the uh, uh, the protests in China. And then now we've also seen some response, uh, or at least that's my understanding from what I've read, is some response from the Chinese government in, 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 in uh, response to those protests. Um, you know, from information you're getting from, you know, from anywhere, uh, how widespread uh, were these protests? How popular were they? Um, you know, and, and what has been the reaction as far as you can understand it? Yeah. Um, of course, I have to say I have only a slice of the reality of China. I'm um, just talking to some friends that, that are over there in Shenzhen, living in, in Guangzhou, which was under, under a very severe lockdown for a long time. Um, and then speaking with some friends who have actually been living in the United States, but were from Guangzhou and had to leave because the, the work for LGBT rights that they were doing is simply no longer tenable over there. Um, they all attest to the increasing frequency and duration and strictness of some of these lockdowns that have begun in 2022. Uh, they were sporadic before, but I think especially when they locked down Shanghai for several months, that mm -hmm. felt like a turning point to a lot of people that saw that even the most privileged part of the country, even the wealthiest, um, most Western-facing uh, city in China, uh, Shanghai was was in dire conditions because the local governments did such a poor job of planning for how to feed an, all these people that were functionally put under house arrest for several months. And that has been a condition that other cities have, have also faced. It started off in Wuhan that way, way back when. Um, but then since 2022 began, we're seeing more cases of cities that are put into stringent conditions. And we saw in Urumqi the, the fire that led to the death of at least one person. And people online in China are, are frequently just assuming that this is because of the, the strict COVID lockdown procedures. Um, my friend James Palmer with the Foreign Policy magazine, he's counted out 14 different cities that showed protests in the following days after that fire in Urumqi. And... That is worrisome to the, the governing party, of course, and really matches with what I experienced there. I only stayed in the urban spaces, but I encountered plenty of young local Chinese who were very aware of the, the disparity between their government and how the rest of the world functions, who have some deep resentment about the restrictions on, on what they can say, what they can do, who they can talk to, where they can go. Um, the the campaign for the last 10 years by the current president of China has, has seen a lot, a lot of the spaces that people had come to rely on closed completely, both in person. You see a lot of uh, nonprofit centers. You see a lot of the gay clubs just shut down completely, sometimes with the excuse of COVID, sometimes just without that excuse. And at the same time, shutting down almost or basically all of the online spaces where people could voice dissent or sort of relieve that pressure, um, which has led to what I perceive as widespread resentment among people under a certain age. Over a certain age, they seem relatively scarred by the events of the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1989. There were plenty of experiences in their life to make it clear to them that the state would use force to put them in their place. But the younger generation doesn't have that same visceral 
lived experience and they only see the sacrifice. They don't see the benefits. And by and large, they seem to be embracing popular movements like the, the laydown movement, which says, don't try very hard. Don't try to scale the corporate ladders because you're probably not going to get anywhere anyway. Mm. Someone will be better connected or more corrupt than you and they will just take the, the cash and leave you in the bottom room. People that can get away and move to other countries are doing so, but that takes money and privilege. And many of the others are just sort of laying back and taking to the model of let it rock and not really investing in the future, which is terrible for China's future. Mm. Um, the U.S., I, everybody should want China to succeed, to become mm. a robust place where people can have a, a functioning system that accommodates this diversity of opinion and allows a billion people to live a billion different lives if they want to do that. But right now it is in the hands of, of old men that do not want to give up power and more and more people are aware of that, even if they cannot say anything about that. Um, so seeing, reading that people are showing up to protest with blank pieces of paper, um, that they are sort of standing silent uh, in vigil makes a lot of sense to me. There's such a widespread resentment, not only against the government, but against the, the white-clad medical workers that are stationed near every apartment building and make demands that everybody take their test every day um, and force everyone to, to waste their time. That's just been growing, and it will continue to grow until people have a chance to really see change in a way that makes their lives better. Yeah, that's very fair. I uh, actually, when you said about the closing down services that people relied on, I that actually reminded me in the U.S. when I was talking to different groups of unhoused folks, that was something they brought up a lot, specifically about the beginning uh, of the pandemic in the U.S., where folks on the street were relying on services, you know, and then like overnight, you know, things closed, everything closed, and you know that whether in China or the U.S., that uh, could be a pretty traumatic and uh, jarring. Uh, uh, set of events, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's there's a whole generation of Chinese uh, youth or Chinese people who are like under 50 who grew up when China was still opening. Mm. Um, and they have seen in the last 10 years a lot of those connections to the rest of the world, a lot of the, uh, the groups that they had relied on to form their community, to give them the support to to form an identity that they wanted to live in the world. They've seen all that taken away from them, and seemingly they got nothing in return. I really appreciate you speaking with me. Uh, super, super great, and it was great to read your book. Is there anything else you want to share before you go? Yeah. Um, I, I hope every everyone listening um, appreciates how how safe we are, how, how healthy we are, um, and how hard that some people are still living. Um, it's it's great to have the perspective of being overseas and experiencing a, a very different way of engaging with the world, and it's made me cautiously optimistic about America's future and the the way that we can we can muddle through as long as we're able to step back and take that perspective. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure, Nick. Thank <laughs> you again. And that's our interview. Thanks for listening. Solidarity.
This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.